Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We are coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Marlene Even. Does Australian media reflect Australians? Nearly half of Australians are either born overseas or have a parent born overseas, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. But peering into the newsroom, you'd be pressed to see this. So what is the impact of mainstream media presented through a largely white privilege lens? What are the stories we are not hearing? And is the media doing enough to acknowledge but also address systemic racism? These are all questions highlighted in the co-founder of Media Diversity Australia, Antoinette Latouf's new book, how to Lose Friends and Influence White People. The recently published book explores Australia's systemic racism, a powerful how-to guide to challenge prejudice, champion race equality and handling burnout and fatigue. As an award-winning journalist, Antoinette unpacks how it all unfolds within the media landscape. How can change occur within the media boardrooms, newsrooms and listeners' lounge rooms. We are joined by Antoinette Latouf. Welcome to Fourth Estate. Thank you so much for having me. Now, firstly, what motivated you to write this book? I think if you speak a lot of to a lot of people who talk about racism or inequality, many didn't set out to become advocates. Like it's not something when I was you know, in year two and asked to get in front of the class, what do you want to be when you go? grow up I at that point could confidently answer that I wanted to be a journalist I knew from a really young age that's what I wanted to do and it wasn't until after about 10 years in the industry as I got more experience and really started to have a better and deeper understanding of just how much of an impact our media has on social cohesion and race relations that I thought oh gosh I think I'm part of the problem because our the Australian media in particular is so unrepresentative of it's multicultural society when you compare it to the, the UK, the United States, New Zealand and Canada. And a quick disclaimer, not to say they're perfect, they're just further along in their journey, that I decided that I wanted to challenge that. And so the first thing I did was set up Media Diversity Australia. I co-founded that and that's a not-for-profit which sought to increase cultural and linguistic diversity in our media because I understood that that the role a representative and inclusive media has in, in, in managing, better managing race relations. 
And in doing that and in seeing those around me, other advocates in the space who, again, didn't set out to be advocates, they set out to be lawyers or writers or something else. But then when they were part of power structures that they realised were a big part of the problem, they thought, oh, gosh, can I remain working in this industry or working in this pillar of democracy when it is doing an enormous disservice to people of colour um, and from communities that I belong in? And so this book was, I guess, uh, born out of witnessing what happened, what's happened to others um, in who have a public profile, who have dared talk about uh, racism or challenge systemic racism. And it's it's uh, the how to lose friends is a bit of a cheeky take on Dale Carnegie's very famous how to win friends and influence people because when it comes to racial equality, Australia is so uncomfortable with not only its brutal colonial past, but accepting systemic racism continues and, and accepting that we still have flow-on effects of the white Australia policy, which was only abolished in the late 1970s. Um, and so in denying that it exists, we have seen people before me, like Yasmin Abdul-Majid, Adam Goods, Yubi Steins, who've, who've faced enormous public backlash, backlash from the media, sometimes even backlash from politics, simply for trying to challenge a very real and growing problem. Now, we are going to be talking about backlash in a moment, but firstly, let's map out where we are. While many newsrooms have made efforts to increase diversity in recent times, we are still looking at an industry that looks like it came straight out of the 1980s. (laughs) Can you give us a true picture of what we are dealing with? Yeah, absolutely. Look, when I first started working so I started at SBS started my career at SBS which is where all good ethnics go for their media career Um, and I left a few years later because I was adamant that these stories didn't just belong on SBS like these are stories of Australia and not only that uh, like brown people should not only be doing brown stories we should just cover all stories because we all you know most of us have rent and mortgages to pay we we have jobs we are we're part of families like so many issues that impact all Australians impact people of color it's it's not as though we need to separate the two I went to the ABC and after I went to the ABC I went to channel 10 and at that time I remember distinctly when you walk into a newsroom, other than um, the security guards at the front, which are almost always um, Middle Eastern or Pacific Islanders, and some of the cleaning staff are overrepresented in in service and precarious uh, jobs in the jobs industry, who may be Asian or Latin American, there was not a single person of colour other than myself in the entire newsroom. And by that mean, I mean on air, um, producers, editors, directors. And so it's as though you've walked into Aryan Germany. Like it's really, it's quite a sight to behold. And um, and that wasn't just my experience at Network 10. It's been my experience in a lot of newsrooms. Um, I, I spent a little bit of time freelancing at Channel 7. I've you know, worked at ABC, as I mentioned, SBS and Triple J, and it is not uncommon to be the only person of colour in the room. You talk about diversity without inclusion is only a half win. What do you mean by that in terms of diversity in the media? Yeah, so I mean, since that, I mean, I've since describing those things uh, and those environments uh, throughout the earlier parts of my career, things have changed uh, slowly. Um, not everywhere, but for example, the ABC is putting a lot more effort into um, ensuring the cadets as part of their cadet programs that they have my, more diversity. Even, even Network 10 has internship programs and scholarship programs where they partner with Media Diversity Australia or the Walkley Foundation 
And what they have is they have more, yes, they have more people of colour. They're generally quite young. Uh, they're generally quite inexperienced um, and they don't have a lot of power. They're not the ones who set the news agenda. They're not the ones necessarily uh, with the story that sits at the top of the bulletin or, or, the, or the front page of the, the newspaper. So what I talk about is diversity without inclusion. If it's just kind of window dressing and if it's just, you know, making the HR department feel a little bit better about ticking some boxes, but there isn't a sense where a journalist or any, any in any workplace can bring their whole identity safely to a work environment to find that there is a career path to success, that they can be promoted, that they can actually have an opportunity for their to, to thrive, to have a pathway into a leadership position. That's where the inclusion part comes in. So there's that famous, the famous saying that diversity is being invited to the party and inclusion is really being able to dance. Um, and, and, and being given that freedom to, to be yourself and to prosper. And that's where we often don't get it right. That, that diversity through all the tiers um, of the media. And you mentioned before talking about backlash and you gave the example there of Adam Goods and, and Yumi Steins. In your book, you talk about how to support non-white people unfairly targeted by politicians and the press. And you say that people should be using privilege to advocate change from within the media. What does that look like? Yeah, and look, I guess the, the points I make in my book aren't just about the media. They're really applicable to whatever industry and sometimes just in, in, um, in, in your personal life or amongst your social circle. So uh, often people in this space fear oh, I'm going to say the wrong thing, I'm going to be cancelled, I'm, I'm going to use the wrong terminology. And that can be quite difficult for, say, a middle-aged white guy who's like, well, what can I do? I'm just a middle-aged white guy called Andrew. If I say anything, like, it's not my place to speak. And that's where I implore people to identify what their privilege is, whether it's because they have an education um, or because they're in a senior leadership position or because they're a white person or whatever your respective privilege is. We all have privileges. I have I have privileges that other people in the Middle Eastern community in, in Western Sydney don't have. And so the step one is identifying what your privilege is and then, uh, and then seeing what you can do to help support people of colour who are being unfairly targeted e either by politics or the press. So what I deeply, deeply regret is I never stood up publicly for Yasmin Abdul-Majid. Privately, I thought, I can't believe what's happening to her. Publicly, I was too scared of what would happen to me and my career. I didn't feel I had enough power. I was worried about repercussions. But often advocacy comes at a cost. It might cost you something. It might cost you a relationship with a friend because, you know, they say and do awful things and you're like, oh, my God, I just can't. I can't be connected to somebody who has such discriminatory attitudes or it can be a threat to your livelihood. At that point, I thought I would lose my job if I spoke out. Um, and I regret that decision. Um, there's nothing I can do about it. I can't absolve myself. But what I've tried to do is learn from it and ensure that I use my relative privilege now and power to when I identify something as unjust as what happened to her, that I do what I can to try and counter it, either by writing columns, either by making complaints to the Australian Press Council or other bodies, you know, that, that govern the, the media industry. And so I guess that's what I implore people to do. We, all, we can all write letters to the editor. We can all make complaints to Twitter if we see and, and report uh, racist and discriminatory accounts and tweets. We all have something to do. And my children are at school and they're being taught about bullying and they're like, don't be a bystander, be an upstander. 
Um, and, and that's similar in, in, in race relations. There were plenty of people, for example, with Adam Goods in the AFL who had enormous privilege, who should have who should have said, hey, this is not okay. And the media commentary surrounding it, A, the AFL's not doing a good enough job. The all-white panels of white blokes denying that this is racism is not, aren't doing enough job, a good enough job. And there are a lot of people who just stayed silent. And, and, and that's where I think we, we all have a role to play and to be better allies. And if you think, well, I'm not a CEO or I don't have a connection to the AFL or I'm not good at writing op-eds, you can still write letters of complaint to, you, you, there's still, still something you can do. You can start petitions. You can, you can do something to show that we're not just going to be bystanders. And I guess we're, we have a lot of discussions about backlash or a pile-on um, when someone calls out racism or I guess the opposite as well, they say something or act in a racist way. Is the media too eager to focus on the pile-on of an mm. individual rather than the actual discussion of systemic racism itself? It's interesting, and, and those on the right or in the more conservative circles will say, oh, cancel culture, you can't say anything. And earlier earlier this week, or perhaps it was last week, um, Scott Morrison said something like, Australians are sick of walking on eggshells, you know, making a reference to, to cancel culture. And I, I think it's important to distinguish there's a difference between call-out culture and cancel culture. Yes, call-out culture can be a bit annoying when people just, you know, rant on social media about something. They're like, oh, I can't believe they said that. That's so annoying. Cancel culture and truly being cancelled comes with actual real power and repercussions. And, and, I, and I question, when is, when is that power and repercussions applied and to whom? Because as much as the Scott Morrisons and Christian Porters or middle-aged white blokes would like to think it is them who are the targets of cancel culture and it is them who is vulnerable, I am yet to see evidence of a single person of that stature or of, of that identity truly be cancelled. And by cancelled, I mean uh, driven out of the country, lost their job, uh, you know, had thousands and thousands and thousands of words written about them, as, as was the case with Yasmin Abdul-Majid. And so it's interesting when it happens to a person of colour, like Yasmin or Adam Goods or even Walid Ali, it's often like, oh, well, they're in the public profile, they should just cop it. When it happens to someone like Erin Molan or Georgia Love, but happens to someone who is white, it's interesting the chorus of sympathy that then comes out. Sam Frost, for example, the ex-bachelor who made problematic comments about apartheid and uh, the reason she wasn't getting vaccinated. Uh, it just recently, a couple of weeks ago, the Murdoch press um, had this really sympathetic, beautiful photo shoot of her where she was like, oh, poor me. I got, you know, my feelings got hurt and people were mean. Uh, that sort of sympathetic coverage isn't given to someone like Yumi Steins and um, Yasmin Abdul-Majid, sure as hell won't, wouldn't be given to me either. So you question who, whose feelings we care about and who's truly getting cancelled. And I guess a lot of these discussions also happen over social media. I wanted to ask you about Media Diversity Australia's plan to research the online safety of diverse journalists. What's this research going to be about? What will you be looking into? So this is a really interesting um, initiative that's uh, Media Diversity Australia in partnership with the eSafety Commission, um, and we have um, financing it are the big tech companies, Google, Twitter and, and Facebook. We've partnered with two universities, Griffith University and Macquarie University, and it's going to be a survey of the online experiences of diverse journalists. And in, in this, uh, we're using the diverse as an umbrella, quite an umbrella term. So that includes journalists of colour, 
females, LGBTQI plus journalists and journalists with a disability. So it'll be a quantitative survey of experiences, but it'll be also a qualitative component where there'll be interviews. Okay, so what has happened to you? Then what happened? Did you report it to management? What was their response? Did you go to the police? Did you think you had help? To try and look at the institutional responses to threats and abuse um, and where there might be policy shortfalls, like are journalists not getting enough training and support? Does the e-safety commission need to consider more legislation? Do the tech companies have more of a responsibility? That None of this research has been carried out. And also, what are the impacts when this happens? And we know it's disproportionate when it comes to minorities online. Does this mean they opt out of online discussions? Does it have a silencing effect? Does it drive them out of the industry? What does that then do to public debate when certain groups don't feel that they're safe? Oh, that if they do make a mistake, they're going to be absolutely crucified because we all make mistakes. Like I'm now thinking, I'm terrified. I'm like, I will make a mistake and there will be a lot of people waiting and wishing for me to fail so they can see that troublemaker. She was wrong anyway to completely, you know, discount anything I ever worked for or said. Um, and so it's like you, you live constantly with that fear, so much so that getting Yasmined is now an academically recognised term for to, to describe the experiences women of colour have if they have a public profile. I mean, it's that bad. It's now an, getting Yasmeen is actually a fear that non-white people have should they have a public profile or engage with the media. And, I mean, people are opting out of Twitter, for example. So do you think policy change is a possible answer? Look, I don't want to preempt the results and obviously the interviews and the academics will do what they do independently. Um, but often, as with the case with technology, legislation and institutional or even organisational at an employment level response usually take a while to catch up. These things, um, technology changes, the uptake changes so fast and laws and responses often lag years you know they take years to catch up so I have no doubt that there will be a bunch of recommendations about policy considerations and legislation considerations. And talking about social media there is a campaign by Media Diversity Australia which was launched on Twitter earlier this year called hashtag things I've heard. It's really quite startling to read through the posts on this campaign what response have you received and why do you think it's so important to highlight these microaggressions? Um, I think it's it's interesting to hear your response that, you know, you found it quite confronting and sobering to read. I think people don't often um, necessarily believe when, when, when we talk about what it's like to be a minority or to be the only person in the room. They're like, oh, I don't see colour, the only colour person of colour in the room. Well, it doesn't matter, just get your head down and do your job. And don't really have an understanding of what it's like to have to face routine microaggressions and casual racism. And it's not an isolated incident. So the one isolated incident that you might turn to your colleague and they're like, oh, don't take it too hard. You're being sensitive. And it's like, no, it's the cumulative effect of this over years and years. So while it's called a microaggression, there's nothing micro about the impact it can have. One of the things that I shared was um, a tweet um, about there was a terrorist in the news, um, uh, but he was a white dude. And I can't remember what his crimes were, but the editor, were, the executive producer was subbing a script and the guy's name was, let's say, Tom Jones. I can't remember his name. And the, uh, the executive producer was like, are we sure we have the right guy, Tom Jones? It doesn't sound like he would be a terrorist. You know, as though, like, how could a dude without a beard or an Arab-sounding name be a terrorist? And that, I was just like, I just kind of looked at him and thought, oh, my God, I didn't say anything at the time. 
And how do you combat that fatigue and that burnout from dealing with that on continuous and regular basis? Like, what is your advice to culturally and linguistically diverse journalists? And how can newsrooms do better to support journalists? One of the things I talk about in my book is where to focus your energy on. And it's that movable middle. It's the people who are open to learning and changing. Yes, you've got your cheer squad who nod in agreement uh, and they're already your allies, but it's converting those in the middle that are open to it. People have to be willing and open to change. So while it hurts, um, you, can, you can really only engage with those who are, who are willing. And, they, and I'm not saying those who are your absolute cheer squad, just those who are curious enough, even if they're a little bit sceptical, that's the movable middle. Um, and that's really what you need to engage and, con- and, and convert into allies and advocates. And talking about the movable middle, you have the three ways that people often respond to change, which also includes the entrenched opposition and the fully committed. Where do you think mainstream media sits in those three ways? Hmm. Depends who you're talking about. Hmm. I think there are certain outlets that, you know, like SBS, for example, in diversity and inclusion, that's its very charter. So I think, you know, they are very much um, converted, um, even though they still have work to do, because when you look at SBS and those in editorial leadership positions and on um, uh, in influential positions, they, they're still overwhelmingly white, even though those on screen are, are diverse people. You know, the, the ABC, for example, again, based on their charter and the fact that it's taxpayer funded, which means black and brown people pay their taxes too, um, they're certainly doing some work, not always getting it right, but moving in the, in, in, uh, in the right direction. And, you know, there are some other outlets also trying, and I'm not going to like name specifics, and there are some where they clearly don't give a toss. And then you have to start questioning, is racism and division perhaps part of the business model? Is, um, is being more tabloid and divisive part of, of how they see they get audiences and clicks? And in your book, you also have a section talking about taking the burden off journalists to act as the educator to educate white people. I wanted to discuss this. I'm wondering if the handbooks, for example, that Media Diversity Australia released, which is a reporting on disability and reporting on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and issues. Are resources like this a key role in educating, but also simultaneously taking the burden off? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. We know that journalists are time poor. I'm still a working journalist. We know that newsrooms are facing, many newsrooms are facing, you know, immense business pressures, redundancy, cost cutting. So I absolutely understand how it's a fast-paced environment and more and more is being asked of journalists with few resources, um, fewer resources. So these handbooks are an opportunity for journalists to quickly get some pointers on what to do and things to, to bear in mind. But also it does take the pressure off always turning to the, a person of colour or a person with a disability to do the legwork for you, to do the explaining. I've had many a times people come up to me and be like, oh, can you please translate this? And I'm like, uh, it's Urdu, I don't speak a drastic Arabic. Um, oh, you can you can read this Spanish, can't you? I'm like, no, I am not a multilingual service. <laughs> like, and it's just that default setting that you will do things. Or do you have a contact in your, this community? And so often, I, I mean, I jokingly refer to myself in the book as the brown pages. And, and often you want to help because you want things to get better. But people also need to do some legwork themselves. Um, it's unfair to expect minorities who are already marginalised and face additional barriers to then have to do your homework for you particularly when there is so much information. There are 
there are books and podcasts and handbooks and movies. There's so many ways you can get educated and and, and broaden your mind and, 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 and challenge your biases. So just like, just like your time, Paul, and resources strayed, so are journalists of colour. Um, and so you shouldn't be asking more of them. We should be able just to do our jobs without having to feel that we, we take on that, that extra burden. A sort of full-time job on top of your full-time job. Yeah, exa- exactly. And people, I, I referred to when we started, Isabel and I, who's Chinese-Australian, she now lives in New York, uh, when we first started Media Diversity Australia, we both had journo jobs and two young children. This was meant to be a side hustle, like an unpaid, extremely emotionally taxing side hustle. Um, and so as, 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 as we grew, we now have staff, we have funding, but it's, it's not easy work. And we're still trying to keep our day jobs, knowing that if we, if we fail or if we tweet something wrong, that the, the repercussions on us are going to be greater than if Matt the white bloke next to us does the exact same thing. Now, I wanted to talk about one of the examples you brought up in your book on media reporting, and that's the example of the reporting on the Sydney COVID-19 lockdown. And it was comparing the disparity of how the COVID cases in the eastern Sydney suburb of Bondi were being referred to as a cluster, while the cases in southwestern Sydney were being referred to as hotspots and Mm. red zone areas. It's Mm. a striking example of how language is being used in the media. What do you think led to this? Yeah, this is when, I guess it was a real-life example and the damaging impact that an unrepresentative, not only media, but um, political institution and our... our, um, our government and opposition are how, how problematic it is when they are out of touch um, and not and don't represent the the readers and consumers or um, in politicians regard the voters and the constituents. And so what we had was this very different approach and highly obviously highly politicised um, with with the Liberal government at a state level in New South Wales, where nine out of the ten super lockdown. LGAs, the local government areas, nine out of ten were labour seats. Um, but they were also lower socioeconomic and some of the most multicultural areas in Sydney. And when they sent 100 extra police and they had helicopters flying above and this kind of a tale of two cities, that should have been more scrutinised by the press as why are you doing this? Is this political? Are you Do you not care? Are you trying to appear tough on COVID but only in areas that you know they don't vote for you. Why are you sending the police? You know this is a public health issue. It's not a law enforcement, blah, blah, blah. That was the role the media should have played. However, when most of the media lives beachside or in a city, and there was a PricewaterhouseCoopers report that actually found that the average media worker is, I think it was like a 30-something-year-old bloke who lives in Bondi, and you begin to go, well, if the media is mainly made up of 30-something-year-old blokes who live in Bondi or the inner city... How much skin in the game do they have? How exposed are they to the impacts of these decisions? Because they're still cruising around doing the Bondi to Bronte walk while families in, in southwestern and western Sydney are only allowed to leave the house wearing a mask one hour a day. There are cops everywhere. They've sent the army and there are choppers above. I feel in that regard, the lack of representation in the media was part of the problem. And the ABC, for example, their Western Sydney reporter didn't live in Western Sydney and she was a blonde white woman. How much trust is there, go- is there going to be in our media and in our institutions when people of colour in these suburbs are like, 
look who's talking to us, look what they're telling us, why aren't they asking questions, advocating for us, and then you know what, stuff them, I'm not going to listen to the public health messages. Like it, it has a, a big impact on both social cohesion and trust. And I just think that was a really acute example of what happens when both our politics and media are disconnected from the Australian population. It is a really good example of how important it is to have that trust. So, I mean, you just mentioned this before, but how is increasing the media diversity also possibly increasing building trust within audiences? And that's, I mean, that's a really important question and one I don't have the answer for. However, we, Media Diversity Australia is doing some research on that about diverse audiences and trust and misinformation to see if there is a correlation like between diverse audiences where they are more likely to get their news from and w- who they trust. And so it's a great question. I don't have the answer for that, but stay tuned because they're, hopefully um, the research will, will cover that terrain, which will be out later this year. Look forward to hearing about it. I wanted to end with another nice, big, broad question. Do you have an how-to tip for the media that you would like to end on in terms of systemic racism within the media? Oh, gosh, where do I start? Um, Firstly, actually have a diversity and inclusion plan with targets, if not quotas. You, You actually need to have a plan. People wonder why. I'm like, oh, people aren't applying for jobs. We're not sure how to do it. Do you have a strategy? And you will find that many media outlets now do. A couple of years ago, they don't. But there are also many that do not. Also, keep track of your workforce. Count culture. Understand who it is that works for you at what level. So just as employees fill out tax forms and super forms, it is common practice in the United States and even in the United Kingdom to capture data on who your staff are. So they're... Um, and generally they're opt-in, but you'll find that most people will do it. Um, do they speak another language? Right now we, we only capture, I believe, if you're Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander. Were you born overseas? We have a parent born overseas due to the disability. Understand who your workforce is. Then you have measurables. You might be able to go, oh, wow, look, all our diverse people are only in the lowest band positions in the business. Okay, why is that? Oh, look, at the, you actually ha- and you, you're able to measure your diversity and inclusion policy against what the data tells you about your workforce. You also need to communicate that well to your the benefits of diversity and inclusion because often on what I've heard is, oh, I'm never going to get hired because I'm not diverse. What does a poor bloke like me, what chance do we have? When there's animosity and when there's resistance, it means the organisation and the staff haven't been really sold the benefits of diversity, that it actually benefits um, the news product. It, it makes for a, a more innovative workplace. It makes for richer content because you're able to access more stories. But that has to be communicated to middle managers and staff so that when you know young brown cadets come through the door, they're not met with hostility. They're not. They, they don't have a bunch of colleagues waiting them for them to stuff up and be like, "See, we told you not to hire them. Hire my mate instead." And then applaud and recognise when you get it right because there will be instances where you get it right and that's great and people who champion it internally should be recognised but also learn from when you don't get it right but stick to it because it's really easy to go, oh, well, we gave that diversity and inclusion stuff a six-month crack and it didn't work. Um, so we're going to hire more, you know, three more blondes called Jane. And so I just think it's, it's, it's having a plan, clearly communicating that plan, having the metrics on your employees and your staff and recognising and celebrating wins and learning from stuff that you don't get right. Thank you so much for joining Fourth Estate. Thanks for your time. 
On that note, I'd like to thank Antoinette Latouf for being on Fourth Estate. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is 4th Estate AU. Thanks to our executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for listening. <laughs>